We're continuing in Hebrews, and today we're looking in particular at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 to 14, but I'll start at verse 1 to give us the, uh, the whole context. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation? Let's pray together before we consider God's word further together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. Please bless our hearts today and our minds with uh, what you want to speak to us and say to us through this passage. We pray that your Holy Spirit would indeed give us clarity of mind and that we would leave today uh, blessed in a fresh way and having clearer vision, especially of the supremacy and the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ and our devotion to him. We ask this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Is there not something inherently negative in the word downgrade? Uh, it conveys a concept of, of loss, of forfeiting something superior for another thing which is inferior. And believe me, I have experienced it firsthand. Having worked for an airline, uh, I've done a fair amount of flying in my time. Uh, much of it has been in economy, and I don't mind that. But I recall one instance when I was on a business trip for the company, and hence I was entitled to fly in club class. Well, I turned up at the airport 
with the expectations of uh, business class comfort swirling around my mind. However, I still remember the words of the check-in assistant clearly today as if it was yesterday. She said those awful words, I'm sorry, sir, business class is full. We'll have to put you down the back. Well, my expectations underwent a traumatic and rapid reevaluation. And as I entered economy, the economy cabin that day, I stared at the seething masses around me and the screaming babies in a, with a sense of disbelief. And suddenly the seats seemed very small, and it was with a white, ashen face and a shocked countenance that I sank resignedly into my seat. A downgrade is a very negative concept, forfeiting something superior for something inferior. Now, uh, the people to whom the letter of Hebrews was written were contemplating a downgrade. They were considering forfeiting something superior and taking something inferior. They're actually considering downgrading Jesus' status, his status as the Son of God, the divine one. And they're prepared to give that up and to downgrade it to a non-divine status. And yet, to do so would mean they were forfeiting something of supreme value. And indeed, it would be a loss which they would grieve and regret if they did it for the remainder of eternity. As we saw last week, uh, the letter of Hebrews is written to Christians. They're Jewish Christians. Uh, they believe Jesus is the Messiah, and they by faith have embraced him as their Savior and as their Lord. And yet they are now living in a world dominated by another Lord. That is, of course, in all likelihood, Emperor Nero. And Lord Nero is not tolerating any rival lords. Hence, uh, under Roman rule, the Christian faith is declared illegal. And Christians are now, therefore, in the process of being declared public enemy number one. And as a result, the Christians are facing severe persecution. And there's a real possibility that some of them could lose their lives for their faith. And these particular Christians to whom the letter is written are caught, if you like, between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, the Romans are after them. On the other hand, their own people, the Jews, have rejected them. Uh, they have been banished from the synagogue. And hence, therefore, these Jewish believers are under great pressure. And there is a great temptation which is facing them. You see, for them, the problem and their pressure goes away if they forsake Jesus in his divinity. And hence, you see, the Jewish Christians are considering dropping the Christian part. They're considering going back to just being, if you like, Jews, Jewish. Because Judaism was legal under Roman rule at that time. Judaism was safe. And so they're looking for a face-saving way of going back to the Jewish community. They want, if you like, to go back to being just good, moral, upstanding Jews who are still waiting for the Messiah, but they're not wanting to be Jesus. How are they going to do that? Well, the best way would be for them to now deny that Jesus is God. They can attempt to downgrade Jesus. You see, they can't go as far as downgrading him just to a mere human, because clearly, he has powers, and he has, his life has showed that he is much more than that. But there is a way out for them. There's a halfway house. 
You see, Judaism believed and had great respect for the angels. Uh, the angels were God's messengers. Uh, we read um, and we learn that the angels actually were the mediators who delivered the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And therefore, within Judaism, there is a great honor and respect attached to angels. And that's it. That is the way out for these Jewish Christians. They downgrade Jesus, not to a mere human. They deny his deity, but they now say, actually, he's an angelic messenger. He's a created being, he's an angelic messenger. And that's the way back. They can be embraced again by the Jewish community. They can be allowed back into the synagogue and all their problems go away, or so they think. But the writer of the letter knows that's not the case. The writer of the letter knows that if they do that, they are on the road to eternal ruin. And he's not going to allow them to do it. If you like, he's going to try to head them off at the pass. As we saw last week, his opening paragraph in the letter is a, what we, called a, we could call a barrage of woo. He's starting to woo them. He's showing them the glittering supremacy of Christ. He's the son of God, he said. He's the very voice of God. He's the one who reveals God's character. And then he's gone on to explain, this Jesus is the inheritor, the creator, the sustainer, and the savior and the ruler of the universe. Already he's saying, he is in a different league to the angels. But now you see, the, the writer anticipates the response of his readers. And the response of his readers is going to be, oh yeah, prove it to us, so that we in turn uh, can really take this on board. How do you prove to a Jew that Jesus is in a different league to the angels? Well, you go back to their own scriptures, what we now know as the Old Testament. And so that's what happens in the remainder of chapter one. If you like, it is the case for the defense it's the scriptural evidence from the Old Testament that supports the supremacy of Jesus above all things. And it's, a, it's saying the case is, don't downgrade him, because to do so would be an act of unjustifiable folly. Now, before we explore the writer's case, it's worth asking uh, where this intersects with our world today. Uh, there are some sections of our society who even today maintain uh, a keen interest in angels. Uh, there are those who are interested in spirituality, uh, but not Jesus. There are also a little close to home uh, Christians who are particularly focused on the work of the Holy Spirit and the unseen spiritual realm. And as we will see... Uh, maybe the danger for us here today is that maybe we class ourselves as more conservative Christians. Maybe one danger is overlooking the role and the importance of angels in our Christian journey. But the point then is to become over-focused on the angels' part would be to miss the point. Because the real issue here is the supremacy of Jesus, the deity of Jesus. And the real issue here therefore is downgrading Jesus. And when we look at our world today through that lens, we see that all around us. What do we see? We see people wanting to avoid the implications 
of Jesus' deity. Why? Because it is too costly. Think about it. The minute that you acknowledge Jesus is God, then what follows? If you admit he's God, the implications are you should worship him. In other words, he should become central to your life. And people today, many people don't like that. They have other passions, other priorities that they want to build their lives around. And they resist any implication that, therefore, they should worship Jesus as central to their lives. Also, another implication flows out of that. If Jesus is God, then it follows we should obey him. And people, many people today, don't like that either. They say, nobody's going to tell me how to live my life. And so they get around the problem by downgrading Jesus. And they do give him some credit, but they don't go far enough. They don't give him the status of the divine one, the Son of God. Uh, the closest example would be um, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, they have adopted the teachings of the 4th century Egyptian bishop Arius. Uh, his teaching was rejected by the church as heretical in uh, 325 AD. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses downgrade Jesus' status to that, as Sophie knows, of and Tasso as of a heavenly being. But they deny that he is the Son of God. Uh, then there is Judaism. Uh, at best, Judaism today uh, downgrades Jesus to being a great teacher of the Old Testament law. Uh, at the very worst, Judaism today castigates Jesus as a sorcerer and a magician. Uh, look at Muslims today. They acknowledge Jesus as a great prophet, a messenger of God, but not the Son of God. And then uh, there is a whole range of people who today would put the tick in the box for Jesus being a wonderful human, but they would leave the box for his divinity empty. They would say, uh, he's just a great moral teacher. He is just a great example for us to follow, but he's not the son of God who died for the sins of the world. And when we think about those sort of people, it's not just uh, secular people out there, agnostics or atheists. There are also plenty of people who take that position who come to Christian churches regularly. Some people who go to church, they want to redefine the Christianity to be something that they are more comfortable with. For them, they want the Christian faith to be primarily about moralism. For them, they want it all to be about living by the rules so that they can earn their way to heaven and they keep control of their lives. But then, moving it closest to home of all, I ask myself, could I be ever tempted to downgrade Jesus' deity, to let go of it? Well, having been a Christian for 43 years, I don't feel like I would. But then again, maybe that would be arrogant for me to say. Because the issue is, of course, beware lest you fall. And I think I would be a fool if I said, there's no danger that I could ever deny Jesus as the Son of God. 
And therefore I, and I encourage you today if you're Christian people who have faith in Jesus, I and we need to take this passage seriously because it is, if you like, important preventative medicine. In some way, it encourages us for that future day when maybe we're tempted to let go of the divinity of Jesus, when maybe the cost has increased for following him and trusting him as the Son of God. It prepares us for that day. And if you're somebody here today who is still investigating the Christian faith, then what we're looking at today is central to your quest. Why? Because the Christian faith is all about Jesus, who he is and what he has done. And so if you're somebody here today who is investigating Jesus, what I encourage you to do is in that quest, don't go to the edge. Don't be totally preoccupied with questions like, where did Cain get his wife? Or how do dinosaurs fit into the creation account? Don't go to the edge, go to the center. Go to Jesus, start there, because that is what it is all about. So let me give you a very brief heads up uh, as to where we're gonna go this week and how it fits in with what we'll see in the next two weeks beyond. Because chapter one is all about, uh, in fact, the next three weeks are all about the superiority of Jesus. Uh, This week, it's all about how he is superior to the angels in his divinity. And the next two weeks is all about he's superior to the angels in his humanity. Okay? Uh, That gives you a heads up as to where we're going. So let's get into the rest of chapter one. And let's try and dig down a bit. Uh, As we'll see, there's a bit of overlap in what we see here. But I'm hoping that we'll really go away with a sense of and an excitement about the supremacy of Christ as the Son of God of God. So, let's see. Firstly, uh, the case the writer puts is this. Jesus is superior to the angels because he has a superior name. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. So, uh, he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now, according to Jewish thought, somebody's name revealed something of their nature, their status, or their role. Now, the Hebrew name for angels is malach, or if I was to pronounce it correctly, malach. Uh, In Greek, it is angelos, and both mean messenger. And therefore, the name angel points to their role. They were divine angels message bearers. But the writer is saying, Jesus' name is superior. What is that name? And when, according to the writer, because he inherited it, when did he inherit it? Well, to make his case, the writer goes back to the Old Testament and he picks up on two particular, what we would call messianic passages. Uh, Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. Uh, They're messianic messianic passages. They look ahead to the day when God's promised Messiah would be enthroned. And what we see here in what the writer quotes is a bit like a leaked speech before a press conference because what we see in these passages is what God the Father will proclaim at that coronation, the day when the Messiah is enthroned. So he continues in 1 Hebrews uh, verse 5. Quoting, for 
To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father, which is Psalm 2. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son, which is 2 Samuel 7. You see, by name, angels are mere divine messengers, whereas by name, Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, You may ask this, hasn't Jesus always been God's Son? Because it's talking here about him inheriting the name, the Son of God. Hasn't he always been the Son of God? Well, in one sense, of course, the answer is yes, because he is the pre-existent Son. Go to John's Gospel. He is the one who was in the beginning. But this is talking about the name Son in a very different sense. It's the name that he has inherited. It has been given to him at a particular point in time. And so the question then is this, when is that? When is Jesus proclaimed the Son of God at a particular point in time with power? And the answer is, when his rule starts as the Messiah. When he's, in other words, when he's raised back to life and when he's exalted to the right hand of the Father. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 4, where it talks about Jesus. And it says there, He was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. He's declared with power to be the Son of God. He already was, but now he's the Son of God in a new sense when he's raised again from the dead. And his reign and his rule commences after his victory. He's now finished his work of redemption and he now reigns as the victorious Messiah. Uh, Hebrews 1 verse 3. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. There it is. His enthronement, his exaltation, after he has finished the work of redemption. So you see, This is the coronation of a victor, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the victor over death and over Satan and over sin. And that is the start of his glorious new rule when he ascends to the Father's right hand. And his name, the Son of God, is now proclaimed on a new basis in a new way. It's proclaimed as the reigning, ruling Messiah. You see, he now reigns not just by his eternal right as the Son of God, but by the right of his victory over sin and death as well. No angel has that on his CV. No angel can claim that he sits at God's right hand as the victorious Son of God in power, the one who is victorious over sin, over Satan, and over death. Angels were mere messengers. And so it is utter folly to downgrade Jesus to that of being a mere angel. So, that is the first way in which the Son is superior over the angels. Secondly, Jesus is superior to the angels because he has a superior honour. Angels are the worshippers, whereas Jesus is the worshipped. Now, to make his case, the writer goes back to Deuteronomy 32 where he quotes it in verse 6 of Hebrews 1. And he says this. 
And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Think about what do myriad angels sing to those terrified shepherds on the hillside outside Bethlehem during the reign of Caesar Augustus. They sing glory to God in the highest. They are worshipping. They are worshipping. What are the angels doing today? Revelation 5 gives us a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. Revelation 5 verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbered thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. They're worshiping Him. Uh, have you ever been to a sporting event maybe, where you celebrate with the thousands of others present, your team winning. Maybe it's a historic victory in the Ashes series, where your team has a glorious victory. Or maybe in the Rugby World Cup. No, we won't go there. But uh, the point is, if you're there with people celebrating together, thousands upon thousands of them, celebrating it all with one voice, it is hair-raising. It's an amazing experience. And yet that is what the angels are doing in heaven this very day. And if we trust in Christ, that is what we will do one day around the throne of heaven, worshipping the slain lamb who has died for our sins, the Son of God. It will be hair-raising. It will be wonderful. But do you see, it is utter folly to downgrade Jesus to the level of angels they worship him with all their heart and with total gusto. And we will one day do that as well. So, secondly, a superior honor. Thirdly, Jesus has a superior status to the angels. Uh, angels are divine servants, whereas Jesus is the divine ruler. Uh, look at what God the Father says about the angels, uh, quoting here Psalm 104 in Hebrews 1 verse 7. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes the angels winds, his servants, flames of fire. Now, the wording's a bit tricky there, isn't it? It's a bit odd, but two points are clear. Firstly, God has made the angels. They are part of, in other words, the created order. And secondly, he has made them with a purpose, and that is to serve him to serve God. So you see, the angels serve the throne, but the question then is, who is on the throne? And the writer continues in verse 8, quoting Psalm 45 this time. And it's interesting because this here, he's quoting what the Father says about the Son. Look very closely at what he says. Hebrews 1, verse 8. But about the Son, he, the Father says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. The Son is on the throne. He is the divine ruler. And did you notice how God the Father refers to the Son? About the Son, the son he says, your throne, O God, will last forever. 
You see, the divinity of the Son is not a New Testament idea. It's not unique to the New Testament. It's all there in the Old Testament. As I mentioned earlier, the Jehovah's Witnesses downgrade Jesus to a created heavenly being. And as a result, this passage is a bit of a sticky passage for them. In their New World translation of the Bible, they mistranslate Psalm 45 to read, God is your throne forever which doesn't really make sense, and it's certainly not true to the Greek. Because there is no avoiding it. Jesus is the Son of God, who is on the glorious throne, the divine ruler, and the Old Testament testifies to that. And the the angels are mere servants to do his bidding. So, fourthly, we come to Jesus' superior existence. Jesus is superior to the angels because he has a superior existence. Angels are part of the transient created order, but Jesus is the unchanging creator. We've already seen it, uh, Hebrews 1 verse 7. God made the angels. They're part of the created order, and they're made to serve him. But the point is, they're they're part of the created order. In contrast, Jesus is the creator rather than the creature. And he doesn't change. He is eternal. He outlives all created orders. This time the writer goes to Psalm 102 to make his case, as he states in Hebrews 1 verse 10. He also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. When I worked at British Airways, there was a popular saying amongst the staff, the one thing you can be sure of is change. And that was very much true in our own experience. Uh, It was a very dynamic industry, and it continues to this day to be a very dynamic industry, constant change. And of course, That is true more generally of our world today. The one thing you'll be sure of is change. And to those first century readers, they were living in a time of great change. It was turbulent change. It was uncomfortable change. And the might of the Roman Empire was bearing down upon them. And yet the writer in his letter is reminding them there is one unchanging constant The Lord Jesus, he reigns supreme. Even though the created order will pass away, he is the creator and he doesn't change and he's always there. And he's saying, and you're thinking of downgrading him? You're thinking of ditching him? Nero's reign will come and go, but Jesus' reign will last forever and forever. You can see the implications. Hold on to him at all costs. And finally, the last way in which Jesus is superior to the angels, because he has a superior vocation. Because ultimately, Jesus' vocation is to rule supreme over all, whereas the angel's vocation is to help God's people. Uh, You see, to make his case, the writer quotes this time Psalm 110, which he quotes in Hebrews 1 verse 13. To which of the angels did God ever say, 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What's he talking about? What's this whole thing about footstools? Now, in Old Testament times, uh, it was custom for a defeated king to prostrate himself and to kiss his conqueror's feet. And the victor would then place his feet on the captive's neck so that literally the captive king, now the subservient king, became his footstool. And that is the, the language being used here in this psalm. And it's saying, so it will be with King Jesus. One day, every knee will bow before Christ. One day, every tongue will confess he is Lord. One day, every enemy will admit defeat at his feet. One day, every enemy will become his footstool, including Nero, including death, including Satan. So by now, I hope you've got the point. Uh, it's been presented in five different ways. There's a bit of overlap, but the point overall is this. Jesus is supreme. He is the Son of God. He is superior over all. He's in a different league to the angels. How could they possibly be considering of bringing him down to that level and saying he's no different? So the main point is the supremacy of Christ. But there is one final twist in the case the writer puts. He's saying to put Jesus in the same league as the angels is utter folly. But then he's saying, finally, don't fall off the other side of the horse. Don't dismiss angels of being of no significance because angels have an important job, an important vocation too. Because as we see in verse 14, Christ sends his angels as ministering spirits to help and to strengthen Christians. Chapter 1, verse 14. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Here's a question for you. Do you think angels operate in our world today? Uh, for many Christians, uh, angels have fallen off the radar. Uh, we're very clear, aren't we, as uh, good conservative evangelical Christians on uh, the work of the Spirit, the indwelling work of the Spirit, how he helps us and strengthens us on life's path. But I would suspect that many of us have overlooked the role of angels. Let me tell you of a true account of what happened in 1956, and it's not an isolated account, but let me give you one. In 1956, uh, during the Mau Mau uprising in East Africa, a band of roving, roving Mau Maus came to a village called Lowry. Uh, they surrounded it and they murdered every inhabitant, including women and children. There were 300 in all in that village. Not more than three miles away was the Rift Valley Academy. This was a private school where missionary kids were being educated. Uh, immediately upon leaving the carnage and the murderous scene of this village, Lowry, uh, these natives, the Mau Maus, came with spears and bows and arrows and clubs and torches to the school. And they came to that school with violent intentions. In the darkness, uh, lighted torches were seen coming towards the school. Soon there was a complete ring of terrorists, these Mau Maus, around the academy, cutting off all escape. Uh, the people inside could hear curses and shouts coming from the Mau Maus. 
And then these natives started to advance on the school, turning the circle, shouting louder and louder, coming closer and closer. And then strangely and inexplicably, they all ran off. They began retreating and soon they were running into the jungle. Uh, the army was in due course called out and fortunately captured the entire band of these raiders. And later at their trial, the leader was called to the witness stand. And the judge questioned him and he said, on this particular night, uh, did you not kill all the inhabitants of the village of Lowry? And the leader admitted it, yes, we did. But the judge then continued, why then did you not complete the mission when you came to the school? And the leader of the Mau Mau's answered this, we were on our way to the attack and to destroy all the people of the school. But as we came closer, all of a sudden, between us and the school, there were many huge men dressed in white with flaming swords and we became afraid and we ran off and we had to escape. A true story. There were no other men there as far as the Christians could see. Huge men, white, dressed in white with flaming swords. But they were unseen to them, but they were seen to the Mau Mau's. Angelic beings protecting God's people. It's an amazing story. It's a true story. And it's not an isolated story. Other such stories have been reported over time. And it's also a biblical concept that God's angels protect God's people. Uh, Psalm 91 verse 11 says this, For all who take shelter in the Lord, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. We see it particularly uh, in the life of Jesus, but it's not limited to him as the Son of God. But what do we see when he's tempted in the desert and he resists after him? We read in Matthew 4.11, angels came and attended to him in Gethsemane when he is praying to God his Father for strength. And we read in Luke 23, 43, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. But this is not just a special service for the Son of God. Angels serve us too. And that is what the writer to the Hebrews is saying in verse 14. That is part of their job description. Sometimes as Christians, do we not feel alone? And yet the encouragement is this. God's world is filled with his helpers. They're all around us. We may not see them. But he sends his angels to strengthen, to encourage, to protect, and to give his people hope. And this would have been a great encouragement, of course, to those first century bewildered, fearful Christians. God's angels strengthen his people. And Jesus, therefore, wants us to be encouraged today in our Christian walk and to, above else, to keep trusting him. These first century Christians were tempted to downgrade Jesus to an angelic being. But that would be utter folly. Their own scriptures say he is the son of God. He is the supreme ruler over all of creation. The angels worship him and therefore they should too. And so you see, as we conclude, the more clearly we see the supremacy of Christ, the more joyfully we will put him at the centre of our lives, the more joyfully we will worship him and the more joyfully we'll embrace his rule over us.
So, heavenly, so we need to really meditate on this passage, think about what it reveals of Jesus' supremacy, and pray God would make that, in a way, sink down into our hearts and our minds and transform the way we then live as his people. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, what we've seen in your word today uh, is a staggering portrait, a portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ in his supremacy as the divine Son of God. So many aspects for us to take in. Uh, so we pray that we wouldn't uh, lose sight of the true wonder of what we're seeing here. Help us to take away today. Help something of the wonder of who he truly is, the Son of God. And all that points to sink deeper down into our hearts. And may it in some way therefore draw us to a deeper walk as Christian people, a deeper, more heartfelt worship of him as the Son of God who reigns at your right hand now and before whom one day when he returns, all people will bow in submission. Help us therefore to worship the Lord Jesus Christ more wholeheartedly with lives which truly delight in him and obey him and submit to his joyful rule over us. Amen. Our closing song encourages to live for the King.